Welcome. You are listening to Gaining Christ Audio. In our last podcast, we provided a biblical description of the impending judgment of God that is coming upon our world. Considering this and the astonishing depth of God's grace to provide His Son, the Lord Jesus, as the way of salvation, the question is, does there exist any second chance hope of salvation for anyone who in this life is not united to Christ in faith or who dies with still some guilt of sin on their record? In this episode, we will carefully answer this question. Certainly, we are in some deep, deep waters in this subject. It is incredibly intense, to say the least. And as I said in the last podcast, and I'll say here, that the purpose of this message today is in love to share the urgent truth of God for your spiritual well-being. It is not in any way uh, an attempt to promote a denominational position or tradition or my own theological preferences. Um, It is to speak truth from the Word of God, to help you, the listener, encourage you in God's truth and your eternal well-being with God. Uh, Certainly, the detail in in our last message and, and we would encourage you, if you've not listened to the last message on God's warning to mankind, to take the hour. I know it's long, but the, the information warranted that. And even today will be longer because the same thing here. But listen to that because it is truth straight out of the Bible. And, and as I speak today, there could be some of you listening now who may become confused frustrated or irritated, mad at me, or even offended by what is being said. I'm not trying to frustrate or offend anyone. We are simply trying to expose anything that is contrary to the truth of God, that contradicts God's word and misleads people, and in that to emphasize to you the beautiful truth of God's grace in the gospel of Christ Jesus. So I would ask again, even if you're a little irritated by something said, please listen to the full message here. It will be biblically supported. So, of course, in this last podcast, we we spoke about God's warning of his inevitable judgment that is actually coming upon our world. He set the date. It is horrible, dreadful to consider. The The event will be worse than you can consider, as the Bible says, and even thinking about it is exceedingly difficult, as some have testified to me, and I can testify myself. People say, well, what's the reason for God's judgment that's coming, his wrath being poured? Well, in general, it's because of mankind's sin and rejection of God. God is the creator of all things, but we want to run counter to what God says. And uh, we deny 
as humanity in part at least, God's authority, God's rule, God's truth, and, and even specifically the truth of Christ. And over this, God, quite frankly, as he says, is furious. He's loving and patient and kind, and uh, he, will, he does give an abundant amount of grace, no doubt. But he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. I mean, his anger burns. People don't realize this. God's anger burns over sin. And uh, the description of his judgment, this wrath, which is throughout the Bible is dreadful to think about, causing wailing and pains and regret and, and people running and people being dismayed because God's judgment is coming on those who are guilty of sin and have refused to embrace in faith God's provision of salvation, namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Jesus, in describing this in a lot of detail in various places, says that people will be thrown into a, f- into a furnace of fire, a fiery furnace, where in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal punishment. And, and some will always ask, well, when will this happen? And according to Jesus, it will happen soon. I'm coming when the world does not expect. Literally, it could happen at any moment based on things he says in Matthew 24. And the only hope, as we emphasize and the Bible stresses, is the only hope for mankind to be forgiven of all your sin, saved, made right with God, justified, and have eternal life and entrance into God's eternal kingdom is through Christ Jesus. God in his loving grace has provided a savior. God provides a savior to man. People may think they can dictate what the savior should be, but that will not merit any salvation. Christ Jesus, he is substituted as a sacrifice of atonement. He paid the full atonement for sins. God is satisfied. Sins are cleansed. And this is super beautiful, super gracious, and quite frankly, super true. However, when you consider the intensity of God's guaranteed judgment, and you think about the value of humanity to God, Every person ever made, every person is made in the image of God. Mankind is God's crowning creation entity, mankind, and the value that mankind as a whole is to God. And you think about all the religions in the world and all the philosophies and ideas in the world. And then you think about the exceedingly merciful, loving grace of God. The question that many ask is, if Christ is the only way to salvation, is there any second chance for people who in this life, if they never are united to Christ in faith, or if they die with still some guilt of sin on their record, can they or will they be saved and granted eternal life in some 
way? And this is a very significant question. And perhaps more importantly, the answer is critical. So I will very carefully, using God's word, considering now five of the more, if not most common doctrine or ideas, asserting that the answer to this question is yes, that God has or will provide mankind second chance opportunities or one opportunity that will yield forgiveness from his eternal judgment, salvation, and grant entrance into the eternal kingdom of heaven, even if a person does not fully trust in Christ or dies without all of their sins being forgiven. Let's carefully consider these five assertions, beginning with the second chance assertion number one, which we would call the universal chance. It is the idea that there is a second chance hope of salvation from the judgment of God for people who do not trust in Christ because God in his infinite love will grant a universal forgiveness to everyone regardless of what they believe or trusted in their life. A kind of love wins universal pardon to everyone in the end. Now, we've already spoken about this idea in several podcasts and the last one, so we do not need to spend much time here. But this idea is called universalism. And quite simply, this is absolutely a false teaching. It is not biblical whatsoever. It is radically contrary to the teachings of Christ and the whole of Scripture. Listening to the verses that talk about the judgment and Jesus talking about the narrow gate and and, and many will, will enter a, a wide gate of destruction and not be saved and a few will find the gate that leads to life and how he, when he comes um, in his glory, will sit down and judge all humanity and he will some he will send uh, into a an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, for example. It's an eternal punishment, and others will go away to the eternal kingdom prepared by our Father. Paul talks about how God will inflict judgment on those who do not know God or obey the gospel in this life. It is clear that there's not a universal way. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's quite absurd. This second chance theory of, of some universal pardon at the end of time, love wins and all are saved, which actually kind of sounds like a message of love to some people, is really nothing more than a twisted denial of God's truth. It's not a loving message at all. It's a false message of hate, actually, because it mis- misleads people into a false sense of security and hope and, and no need to come to Christ. It's like telling people, hey, hey, dude, you don't need to come to Christ. You know, just live your life how you want. I mean, you may not have spiritual life and you won't know God in your life and get his help, but, you know, you can do whatever you want. It'll be more fun. Uh, you can live autonomously from God and and how you want. And then in the end of your life, guess what? It all works out for good. Love wins and, and God's going to give everyone forgiveness. You know, the Christians kind of had a good deal going in this life and they knew a little bit, but it all works out in the end. 
You know, that sounds exactly like something Satan would say. Truly. My friend, I hope you know there is no universal pardon or second chance that comes all humanity. There's one way. There's one way of salvation. God provided the way. It's clear. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, what he is. Please come to faith in Christ. Do not set your hope on the the expectation of a universal pardon. That is unbiblical, never happened. That chance, that hope is non-existent. Second chance assertion number two. The potential second chance, which states something like this. Maybe there is a secret second chance or second door to salvation outside of Christ that God has not shared with us that God will or has provided for people for their eternal life. It's unfortunate that we have to mention this, but there actually is a very influential church pastor who is quoted as saying the following when asked if Jesus is the only way of salvation. He said this. This is a church pastor. Maybe God has a mysterious secret trap door of grace that he has not shared with us. Maybe. God provides us information on a need-to-know basis. Basically saying the Bible tells us what we need to know, but basically also saying since God has not told us that there is not a second chance escape hatch of grace for salvation for people, even if they do not believe in Christ, then maybe there is one. This this comment is uh, is incredibly sad and actually incredibly absurd, especially to come from a church pastor. And there's many in our world that kind of think that there is some secret second chance hope. My friend, there is no secret second chance hope, even if God has not told us that there's actually not one, because God's already told us there's not one, because he's made it clear that there's only one. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 10, 9, I am the door. I am the gate, Jesus says, referring to himself. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There's no other name under heaven given by which man must be saved. Acts 4.12. Jesus says, you will die in your sins unless you believe in me. Paul spent his life in his letters, Romans, Philippians, the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ. There's no escape hatch, no secret undisclosed way. There's only one way clearly according to God, this might be idea of an undisclosed secret hatch is a denial of God's truth. It does not deserve any more time. It's a shocking, unwise, and misleading comment by a pastor with so much influence, apparently. Moving on, second chance assertion number three. This is a sensitive one, but here it is. It says there is a second chance hope of salvation from the judgment of God because 
everyone who dies before they hear the gospel or before they are born again in Christ will have a second chance of grace. Like the unreached tribe who has never heard of Christ. It wouldn't be fair. They must be saved. Now, this is very sensitive. But to understand the validity of this assertion and to understand the error of it as well, it is imperative that we understand the condition of mankind as a result of this sin of Adam and Eve. Every human being, that includes you, me, every single person ever born from the first person born who is Cain, the son of Adam, and includes Adam himself, but every single person from Adam on is conceived in sin, is conceived guilty of sin, and under condemnation, even before maybe they even have any act at all. This was God's way of setting up. God appointed Adam, the first man ever that God made out of dirt to be the federal head for all of humanity. And by his one sin and rebellion against God, he brought major calamity on all humanity. And every person, whether they hears the gospel or not, is condemned and stands guilty of sin right now. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. As one trespass of Adam led to condemnation for all people, so the one act of righteousness, Christ Jesus in his life, leads to justification life for all people who believe. This is what the Bible says. Paul preached this in Acts 17 to the Athenians and the Areopagus, verse 26, from one man God made every nation of earth on the, on the planet. Genesis 1 and 2 God describes how he created all things, how he made man in his image. Genesis 3, how man fell. Jesus says, you must be born again, not only to see, understand the kingdom of God, but to enter it. You must be born again from the state you were born in. You must be reborn spiritually. This is what he means. Regardless of your spiritual condition, time, or location in life, you must be born again and united to Christ, or you remain condemned in Adam and your own sin. This is a biblical truth. So not hearing the gospel is not an escape from the judgment, as if it's not fair, because we're already condemned. This proves the urgency of the gospel going out. But here's the great news. While the predominant way for people to be spiritually reborn in Christ is through Hearing the gospel that is preached and subsequently believing in it, we must understand that God can reach, spiritually rebirth, and save a person at any moment in their life, which he does, through other means than the gospel. Not typically, but it does happen. Visions and dreams. I know of people in the Middle East who were saved in a dream, in an unreached part of the Middle East, in a dream, heard the gospel, and believed it and were saved. God will also send angels directly to people to deliver the gospel. He's done that. It's happened in the Bible. He sends angels to give his messages to people. And also, when God wants, he can and does spiritually intervene in anyone's life, but even in a child's soul, 
even before that child is born out of the womb, just like God did with John the Baptist before he was born. Luke chapter 1, verse 15, John was filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. Therefore, the chance for anyone is this life right now. You must be born again. By God's grace, through the gospel, there are no second chances, even if a person never hears the gospel. And this is the urgency for the gospel to be preached. The good news is God is patient, and one of the reasons his judgment has not come as we said in the last podcast, and God says in Peter and other places, is because he's patient because he wants the gospel to go around the world. The kingdom of the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached around the whole world, Jesus says, Matthew 24, and then the end will come. This is why missionaries who love Christ, true missionaries, are working diligently to write the Bible in other languages to help people and preach the gospel, even at the risk of their own lives. Praise the Lord. No second chance if no one hears, according to the Bible. Second chance assertion number four. It states this, that some who have not trusted in Christ will have a second chance at salvation from God's wrath because... When Christ returns in all of his glory and spends some time on earth before the judgment day, people will see Christ in his glory and see him for who he truly is. And some will then repent and come to faith in Christ at this time. Furthermore, as it is asserted, if anyone has died or does die before Christ returns, they will be resurrected at Christ's return and will have the same opportunity to repent and trust in Christ, even if they rejected Jesus during their lifetime. The after Christ returns chance, we might call it. Now, this doctrine was basically triggered into its growing popularity about 150 years ago at some conference. Though nowhere in the Bible And nowhere does Jesus imply or teach anything like it. Not unless you misread some allegorical uh, parts of the Bible that are mistranslated to yield this idea. There are many uh, who love Christ and uh, who believe in Christ and preach from the Bible who claim this second chance opportunity will occur. Here's how the Bible responds quickly. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Is, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Here's the deal. It is appointed for man to live one time. Your tenure is set. This is your life. This is your opportunity to receive salvation. And after that, boom, your judgment is set. You, when you die... You either die in Christ and go to paradise like the thief on the cross who got saved seconds before his own death, and you're with Christ. Paul makes it clear to live as Christ, to die as gain. I desire to, d- to depart right now and be with the Lord, which is better than being here, but I'm going to be here I no longer to preach the gospel. 
If you die outside of Christ, outside of rebirth and union with Christ by faith, your soul is held in Hades when you die, in a lockdown where you will wait for your eventual judgment. There's no escape. In fact, indirectly at least, if not directly, Jesus emphasizes this fact in his parable in Luke chapter 16, starting in 19, of the rich man and Lazarus is called, where there's two people. There's this wealthy man who cares nothing about other people but himself, and there's this poor man named Lazarus who obviously was a believer in Christ based on his, the outcomes, who had had hardly had any food and would eat even what the dogs ate, and they both die, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, which is an expression that's known to be with God in heaven, Jewish, uh, Jewish traditionally. They knew that. That's what it meant. But uh, the rich man, uh, he goes to Hades. And he then, in his torment, he then begs Abraham, who represents God, to warn his brothers and his family and send Lazarus from heaven to go tell his family what's going on. And and then uh, Abraham responds, speaking for God, and the parable says, well, look, no, there's a chasm between us and you and you and us, and no one can get to you, and you can't get out where you are and come to us. And he says, no, if if a dead guy goes and tells my family what happened, they'll believe. And then Abraham says, no, they have the prophets, they have Moses, they have the Bible. If they don't listen to that, they won't believe, even if someone rises from the dead emphasizing that this is it. There's a chasm. You can't cross over, Luke 16. If there were a second chance or a way out of this man's state, it would seem like Jesus would continue speaking. Abraham would say, well, look, man, there is a second chance at the Messiah's return. And uh, when your brothers, if they don't get it now, your, you know, your family uh, they will see the Messiah in his glory, and they will repent and believe. And even you, you guess what? You're going to be resurrected from your current state, and just hang tight because you'll see the Messiah, and you can repent and believe in him too, and you can get saved and have the second chance. Nothing like that is in the Bible. In fact, as Paul writes the New Testament, or a lot of the New Testament on this matter, emphasizes the sudden destruction that will come upon people when Christ returns. And he says they will not escape. When Christ returns, sudden destruction will come upon some people as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Why will they not escape? Because there's no second chance, and they miss the opportunity now. Jesus says you must be ready. You must be ready. Just like Noah got his family in the boat and they were ready before the flood. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, you must be ready because I'm coming in a worse day of judgment than the day of Noah. And if you're not in me and you're not ready when I come, it's too late because I'm coming at an hour you do not expect. In fact, Jesus says in John 5, listen to this, verse 28, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out. 
So there is a resurrection when Jesus returns. All people, even who have died, those who've done good to the resurrection of life. So if in your life you're considered good because you've been justified by Christ, you raise to the resurrection of eternal life in glory and go to heaven. And those who've done evil, who are guilty of sin, to the resurrection of judgment. He says nothing about a second chance. In fact, in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, the emphasis on people believing today the truth and living accordingly is imperative because there's no second chance. Hebrews 3, verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness after that exodus in about 1500 BC, where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years but did not respond accordingly. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They're, it's over. Their judgment's set. There's no second chance. They will not enter my rest. Take care then, brothers, verse 12, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. As long as it is called today, exhort one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As it is said, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today is a day of salvation. God swore in his wrath they will not enter his rest. Please, today is a day of salvation. Today is the opportunity. This life is the opportunity. This is the chance. There's no chance even after Christ returns, as some say. Your life is over when you die or your life is determined when Christ returns. A man is appointed to live one time and then after that comes judgment. There is no second chance when Christ returns. When Christ returns, he is not coming to give second chances and prove who he is. He's already said, said, blessed are those who believe and do not see. Faith is a supernatural gift from God. He doesn't need to come in glory for those who believe in him. I'm such a person. I believe in Christ truly. I've never seen him in his glory. This is what faith is, the conviction of things hoped for, the guarantee of things not yet seen. When he comes in his glory, Christ is coming to do two things, to bring glorification to those who've been waiting for him and to prepare them for the kingdom of heaven and to execute judgment, as Jesus says himself, on those who refuse to believe the the gospel, have refused, and are still guilty of their sin. Please, today is the day of salvation. There are no second chances, even after Christ returns. And lastly, assertion number five, which is probably the most popular second chance assertion in our world today. And so we need to dig carefully into this. This is the final purification chance. Now, as I go into this, some of you may, may get irritated or be offended. Please hear me out. I will provide plenty of proof to the faultiness of this assertion. Here's what the assertion says. There is a second chance at salvation 
for a faithful church-going person who does not fully trust in the finished work of Christ, and they die with some guilt of sin still on their record. So they don't think that Christ has paid it all, and they're still guilty, in their mind at least, of, or literally, of guilt on their record. And so here's the second chance. God will send them to what is known as an intermediate state or place between earth and heaven, where they will experience punishment, temporary, but punishment, and a final purification for these not yet forgiven sins. And through this final purification, they will then be completely cleansed of all their sin and subsequently perfected for the kingdom of God in heaven. Now, again, we have to look carefully at this idea and second chance assertion. Where did this originate? Well, apparently, this idea goes as far back as the 6th century BC, perhaps even further, so at least 2,600 years ago. And there were different religions and philosophies that had certain aspects of this idea within their system. It's, it was prevalent in Greek mythology. And the first religion to apparently adopt this idea was Buddhism. And it, but today it's present in, in certain sects of Judaism and Hinduism and Islam. But this idea, which apparently started in the 6th century B.C., gained a lot of traction in the 4th century B.C. when Plato, who was a leading philosopher, Greek philosopher, asserted the idea. And he, as you may know, is a central figure of philosophy and philosophy and hugely influential on Western modern-day thought and philosophies. He believed in a higher power, some unknown personal God to him. He, he was not a Christian. Plato believed and promoted the idea of this intermediate state that after death, a final purging of sins and all the bad things that are still on the record must occur before entering paradise or heaven or someplace similar, according to your thought. And then, moving forward, this concept gained considerable traction in the world when this idea became an official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church in the 11th century AD. The doctrine of the intermediate state of purging sins after death became a formal Catholic doctrine. And then in 1254 AD, Pope Innocent IV declared purgatory as the official name of the state. And here's how certain articles in the catechism write about purgatory. The Second Council of Lyons in 1274, like 20 years after Innocent named it purgatory, stated when those who are truly repentant die in charity before they have done sufficient penance of their sins of omission and commission, they will have their souls cleansed after death in purgatorial or cleansing punishments. Catholic article, 
Purgatory is the final stage of sanctification that one needs to undergo before entering heaven. Catholic theology takes serious the notion that nothing unclean shall enter heaven. That's actually a good thought. From this, it is inferred that a less than cleansed soul isn't fit for heaven. That also is a good thought. Here's where things seem to go south. It needs to be cleansed or purged of its remaining imperfections. Purgatory is an absolute requirement. Another Catholic uh, article or source. Purgatory is an expression of God's merciful and cleansing fiery love. Billions who might never enter heaven because of their offenses and imperfections are cleansed from sin and enabled to enter heaven because of purgatory. Wow. Here's the Catholic Catechism, an official doctrine of the Catholic Church. All who die in God's grace and friendship, men, all who are in good standing with God through their good standing in the church, but still imperfectly purified, not fully purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification. Now, the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, it is now called, while seemingly somewhat at least influenced by Greek philosophy, has its ultimate support and assertion or grounding from the interpretation of two passages within the Catholic Bible. One is from the actual New Testament. The other is from the Apocrypha. More in a second. Let me read the New Testament passage, 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Here's what Paul writes. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day being the day of Christ, the final day, the day of judgment, according to the Bible. Because it will, this work will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I will explain this verse in a moment. Here's the passage in the Apocrypha, uh, the Apocrypha, which are 14 letters that were seemingly written uh, somewhere between 400 B.C. to 1 A.D. So as soon as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible was finished, Malachi being the last letter in 400 B.C., 39 letters of the Old Testament, there were some other letters that were written before the New Testament was scripted that are called the Apocrypha which the Catholic Church holds as scripture. And the, the, there is a letter, 1st, 2nd, and I think even 3rd Maccabees, an unknown author 
written in about 150 BC. And it's, it's regarding an incident where a literal Jewish priest named Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, who had taken over Judah, specifically Jerusalem. And with these troops and these rebels in what is known as the Maccabean Revolt in 160 BC, he attacks Jerusalem and gains it back for the Jewish people. And this is a huge moment. Hanukkah, the Jewish celebration, is a celebration of this event. And in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 39 through 46, there's an account. I won't read it to you, but you can find it. There's an account where Judas is with his men and a bunch of the troops are slain. And these troops are found to have taken some idols that they found from the Seleucid Empire that they got in Jerusalem. And as a result of that, because it was forbidden, they were killed. And then what happens is, is Judas literally sends 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem as a sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking that they're religious enough to ultimately make it to paradise, but there's then this, this intermediate state. And then he tells the others to pray for him. And then it says in verse 46, it is therefore a holy and, and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loose from their sins while they're in this intermediate state now called uh, purgatory, which the Catholic Catechism 1032.1032 says that because of this act of Judas Maccabeus in Second Maccabees, that we should pray for the dead. People should pray for the dead that they may be delivered from their sins. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them above all the Eucharist sacrifice, and so thus purified that they may attain the beautific vision of God. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and the work of penance undertake on the behalf of the dead. So as we see, not only is the doctrine of purgatory some necessary future after you die purification process to make up for your unforgiven sins part of the Catholic doctrine, but this instruction of people praying for the dead is also included, where they give money to the church on behalf of souls in purgatory in order to shorten their tenure in the punishment of purgatory by causing mercy to be granted to them by their prayers and giving. And in addition, not only are the prayers of people who are alive now, who are praying for the saints, All Souls Day, etc., shortening the time of those who are in purgatory currently, but it merits them grace on earth, those who pray, and will shorten their own tenure in purgatory when they enter it. Now let's take a look at, 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 at the assertion of purgatory and the basis for this doctrine that is officially the doctrine of, of the Catholic Church. For starters, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This passage is not about an intermediate state of purging sins of fire. The fire that is spoken about that will evaluate each man's work, a believer's work, is the coming judgment of God, where Peter, even in 2 Peter 3, says that the work done in this world by believers will be exposed and it will be proven to be eternal work 
or temporary earth, earthly work. So if I build a house and work real hard to build a house, and that's earthly work, although it's important, my house is going to be destroyed in, in the second coming of Christ. That, that is true. That's what Peter teaches, Jesus teaches, the Bible teaches. The work that remains is the eternal fruit of ministry and the work of the gospel in each people's lives, where souls are saved. So a person may lose a lot of the work he spent his time doing, which was earthly work, but he himself will be saved. That's what that passage is about. It is not in any way about a second second chance, necessary purging of sins that people go to to suffer punishment as if Christ's work is not enough. Jesus says in John 15, 16 to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, meaning should remain forever, be eternal. I did not die on a cross and pay for your sins and give you the Holy Spirit and give you ministry gifts so you can be successful businessmen. I did that so that you can produce fruit for God eternally. Be a businessman, that's fine. But the work that matters eternally is the advancement of the gospel. The second problem with purgatory, please hear me out. I know some of you may be mad. Please hear me out. The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, again, is not part of the Hebrew Bible, nor is it part of the New Testament. These are added writings considered by the Catholic Church to now be Holy Scripture. It was in 1546 A.D. that the Catholic Church officially canonized these letters as Holy Scripture. The first century believers did not accept them, the second century, third century, fourth century, etc. These are later additives. In fact, the word hypocryphal is used to indicate a writing or topic that is doubtful or is doubtful in its authenticity. It's something that is spurious, fictitious, false, or mythical. That's what the word actually means. But the Catholic Church renders these 14 letters to be true. Let's just say that they are true. And let's say that this account in 2 Maccabees, that Judas Maccabeus actually did give money for these slain soldiers to get them purged from this sin that they did after they died and others and prayed for them to get them out of the intermediate state is what Judas actually did. Well, look, there are many things in the actual Bible that Jews, that Jewish kings and Jewish priests did that were not authorized by God, actually were commanded by God not to be done, some of which are a total abomination to the Lord. The Jewish people worshiped Baal. They had prophets of Baal, the false Canaanite god of Baal that God instructed them not to do it. The fact that there's there's accounts of the people worshiping Baal doesn't mean it's good. First Kings 18, look at what happens with that. People, listen, this is horrible. The Jewish people offered their children to the Canaanite god Molech and killed them in a fire. Jeremiah 19, 32, and thir- in chapter 32 also in other places. This was not authorized by God. This is an abomination. 
The people of, of Israel worshipped, some of them, the, the goddess they called the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah chapter 7 made God furious. They prayed to dead people seeking advice from dead people. Necromancy. Isaiah chapter 8 made God furious. The Jewish priest who served 150 years after Judas Maccabeus, they called the Messiah demon-possessed and ordered him to be killed. Many other things. The fact that this man, Judas Maccabeus, which we don't know if he actually did this, even if he did give money and pray for dead people, it doesn't mean that it's true. The, the entire doctrine of purgatory lays on a faulty interpretation of 1 Corinthians 3, one verse, one passage, and a questionable passage in a questionable letter called the Apocrypha. Think about that. That is a lot to lay on such a fragile foundation. Think of all the hopes, trust, prayers, all the money and time given for purgatory to get people out because it's assumed this place actually exists. There is nowhere in the Bible that this place exists. The idea, the concept of purgatory, please hear me out on this, completely denies the gospel of Christ Jesus, who completely paid the full atonement for the sins of God's people. It is accomplished, Jesus says. It is finished, John 19.30. Eternal life is a free gift accomplished by Christ. His works did it all. Purgatory and the idea suggests that it is Christ plus good works for some few and some future penalty in purgatory that makes a person right with God. The Bible speaks clearly differently. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, He, the Christ, the Savior, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, not us, on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. This is the gracious gospel truth of God. Romans 3, 22, the righteousness of God is through faith to, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, counted righteous, made righteous by God's grace as a gift through the full redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice of atonement that satisfies the wrath of God fully to be received by faith. Christ paid it all. The punishment I deserved was completely paid by Christ, 100%. The thief on the cross who died a criminal, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. No mention of a timeout probation in purgatory. Straight to paradise, his soul went. It did. For anyone listening right now who believes or even trusts in purgatory, I have this question for you, my friend. If God is satisfied, why aren't you? If God, as the Bible says, is satisfied in the crucifixion and resurrection and the righteous life of Jesus Christ to pay full atonement for the sins of people, and God is satisfied and his wrath relieved, 
Why are you not satisfied? And are you trusting in something unnecessary? You may ask me this question in return. If purgatory is unnecessary and purgatory doesn't even exist, as I would say, and the Bible clearly implies, then why do so many people teach it and so many people believe it? Perhaps like billions of people even believe it. Well, I cannot answer that question, but I've been asked that question. And here's the answer. The reason is the people who teach it, quite frankly, no offense, do not know the true gospel of Christ Jesus. They don't. Otherwise, they wouldn't teach it. They don't know the Bible. It's unnecessary. They do not know Christ. No offense. That is true. And they may truly love people, and they may think they're teaching something that helps, but they're simply caught in a tradition that that is not from the Bible. Or if you're being taught this and it's not A or B, then that person literally is a false teacher who's working to literally deceive you and keep you from trusting in Christ. I don't know. But that is the truth because purgatory does not exist. Here's the good news. Here's the great news. I've got great news and I've got really bad news. Here's the great news, my friend. Truly, listen, the good news is that this, if you truly are a Christian, which means you truly trust in Jesus and his finished work for your, for your sins, then you are 100% right now, 100% right with God. You're righteous with God right now because God's accredited to you the righteousness of Jesus and God credited Jesus all of your unrighteousness, imperfection, and all of your sin. And you're guaranteed for heaven. Yes, indeed, you're not yet perfect and you're not qualified in your current state to enter heaven even though you're promised. And so here's the other good news. When Christ returns to do many things, one will be that he will glorify you, and he will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. Philippians 3, verse 21, Paul writes, and you will be glorified, and you will turn be turned into an immortal, perfect body by the grace of God at the return of Christ, and then qualified to withstand the glory of God and enter the kingdom of heaven. Praise the Lord. That will happen, 100% guaranteed. Here's the horrible news. Please listen. If, however, you are trusting in purgatory as a means of the cleansing of your sins, which means you're not trusting Christ, then it is very, very, very likely that you are not yet a Christian. The reason, because you do not trust in Christ. A Christian, by definition, trusts and, trust and follows Christ in the gospel. You do not know Christ, because if you knew him, you would know that he's paid it all. And you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in Christ, but your good works and something in the future that does not even exist. Purgatory is not biblical. The concept is based on a false reading of one New Testament verse and some passage in the Apocrypha that may or may not even be true. It is also originated from Greek philosophy. It's not an actual place. It's totally unnecessary because Christ Jesus has paid it all. Here it is. Elijah, when dealing with the very misguided people of Israel in his day, facing 450 prophets of Baal to prove their impotence, God rather, he says to the people who believed in this, some of the 
the the the suggestions of Baal worship by these false prophets. Here's what here's what Elijah said to the people in First Kings 18. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? And in love, I say the same thing to you who are trusting in purgatory or the second chance idea of it. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? The, the opinion of God and the truth of the gospel, which you claim to believe, and this unnecessary untruth of purgatory. Please, my friend, come to the truth of Christ, the gospel of God. There are no second chances. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is a day of salvation. There are no second chances. The Lord Jesus has fully, completely, internally paid for sin and saved sinners from God's future coming wrath. There is no other way. There are no second chances. Please, if you've not already come to faith in Christ, and if you have, praise the Lord for his full grace and powerful work to give you full salvation in a place with God forever. Please praise the Lord. Thank you very much for listening. Spread the word.